0: Well, good morning. We had a great summit last week, didn't we? Yeah. God showed up in a really special way to challenge our lives. Our speaker for the first chapel after summit is Dr. Lenny Lucetti. Dr. Lucetti is a professor of proclamation and Christian ministries at Wesley Seminary, but that's not why he's here. He's an author. It's been helpful to me in reading some of his stuff, but that's not why he's here. He's here because our theme this semester is relationships, and uh, Lenny was a pastor at a church that specialized in reaching real people with real messes in their lives. And I've asked the Lord just to stretch our thinking about what we might be in reaching people in relationship that uh, sometimes we don't think about doing. So would you welcome Dr. Lenny Lucetti as he comes to share God's word with us? Well, welcome to Mandatory Chapel. <laughs> mandatory worship uh, seems a bit oxymoronic, don't you think? Uh, back in the stone ages of the 90s, best decade of music ever, I went to a sister school of Indiana Wesleyan that, uh, that forced us to attend chapel. And so I would uh, take my student ID card, and we had to check in, actually before chapel started. So we would slide and glide out the door. We would scan and scram. We'd check in, then we'd check out. So I got credit for being in chapel, even though I wasn't there a lot of the time. I didn't like chapel very much. I should mention that I was actually at this college studying to be a pastor. Uh, the only reason I went to, col- went to chapel at times, there was a season when I actually went, and, and really the only reason why I went was to check out women and consider which woman could possibly become Mrs. Lucetti. Because although I didn't care much for chapel, I actually wanted the woman I married to like chapel because I wanted her to love God enough to access the grace to love me. So I went to chapel looking for a wife, not God, and I found both. There were times in chapel that I was forced to attend when I came away so heavy with hope I could barely contain myself. There were times when I failed miserably at keeping God at arm's length, when God showed up in incredible ways. What I'm saying is if I wasn't forced to attend chapel, I might not have encountered God in ways that have shaped me to the core. So I say all that to say to the four or five of you who might have come begrudgingly, I know how you feel. I sat where you sit, and I hope that today or someday when the chapel speaker is more engaging, you will sense the power of God's spirit hovering over the deep primordial chaos of your collegiate years in a way that transforms you. So... Uh, there's my take on chapel. You didn't ask for it, but there's my two cents worth. Uh, you can tweet your nasty disagreement later. My Twitter handle is John Bray. <laughs> God is uh, on a mission. Always has been, always will be. And every person created in his, in his image has a mission too. Whether we, whether we state it or not, whether we know it or not, all of us have a mission. The people around us know what our mission is. They'll say behind our back, he's on a mission, or she's on a mission. I had an Aunt Linda uh, who was on a mission. We, we would have these large family gatherings, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins, large Italian meal. We didn't just have four courses. We had like 24 courses. So we had a lot of dishes. After the meal, which my grandmother typically hosted, she would, she would uh, tell the kids to scram, beat it, get out of here, go play, go play while the adults clean up. And my Aunt Linda would sneak away in the crowd of kids, saying she had to go to the bathroom. And somehow she timed it so that when she came back from the bathroom and into the kitchen and asked if she could help, the job was already done. She did this all the time. So when she started to leave the table, we would say she's on a mission to leave the kitchen. What's your mission? You're on a mission. The Missio day, the mission of God, can be summed up uh, with one obscure verse in one of the least read books of the Bible, Leviticus, chapter 26, verse 13. I know it by heart, but I'll turn there. It's the mission of God. God has uh, delivered marginalized Hebrew slaves from oppression in Egypt, and then he says these words, we think through Moses to his people. Leviticus 26.13 God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery in Egypt. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your head held high. That's the mission of God. The imagery is of a wooden bar placed on the backs of the necks of animals, forcing their head downward in hard labor. And the only way for the animal to lift his head was to lift the bar. God, metaphorically, broke the bars on the backs of the marginalized Hebrews so they could walk with their heads held high. The mission of God is a bar-breaking, head-lifting mission to the messy margins. To be in the margins is is, is for a person or a group to, to be on the margins socially, economically, physically, ecologically. In a way that prevents them from goods and services. Resources that will enhance their quality of life. That's what it means to be on the margins. In layman's terms, the marginalized are the invisible, the voiceless, the ashamed, the destitute, the oppressed, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the destitute, the devalued. The dejected, the rejected, the addicted, the afflicted, and the alone. To be marginalized is to be Hagar of Genesis 16, a woman who was marginalized because of her, uh, her gender, her race, and her status as a servant in the house of Abraham and Sarah. And they mistreat her, and this marginalized woman runs away even further out to the margins. No one knows her. No one cares for her. No one loves her. No one sees her except for God. God finds her on the margins and she exclaims, you are the God who sees me when no one else does. That's my paraphrase. And she says, I now see the God who sees me. Knee. You see, God looks for relationships with people where no one else looks. Not in the center of the page, but in the margins. Not among the mighty Egyptians, but among the marginalized Hebrews. That's how God rolls. And then Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. And he has the same bar-breaking, head-lifting mission that his father had, like father, like son. And he puts his mission statement this way. He quotes from Isaiah, Luke chapter 4. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release to the prisoner, to set captives free by proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus didn't just talk that, he walked it. In fact, the stories that we remember most about Jesus, the ones that are most familiar to us, are the ones where he is breaking bars and lifting heads among the margins. We remember the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Here is a woman who is marginalized because of her, her, uh, her race, her religion, her romantic life. And she comes to the well to draw water, not with other women as was the custom. She's alone because she's been ostracized. And Jesus is exhausted. He's got the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders. But he musters up the energy to strike up a conversation with a woman in desperate need of a friend so he can break her bars and lift her head in dignity. We think about Mark chapter 1. There's this leper who's forced to live outside in lonely places because you couldn't come in contact with a leper or within a certain feet of a leper, or you would have leprous cooties. So lepers were kicked out of the community, forced to live alone. And Jesus doesn't just enter the space of the leper, he actually touches the leper, breaking all the religious rules to break the bars. He can't help himself. And then there's my favorite story, uh, Mark chapter 5. There's this uh, demon-possessed guy running around in the nude, cutting and cussing. He's cutting himself, yelling out vulgarity. Jesus has gone into a Gentile region, which was unlikely for a Jew. He steps on a graveyard, which was unclean for Jews, And while most of us would have gotten back in the boat to leave, Jesus strikes up a conversation with this naked guy running around, cutting himself and cussing. To break his bars and lift his head. It's just what he does. And in every situation, and I can name a ton more, in every single situation, Jesus' mission to the marginalized marginalized Jesus. So when he's talking to this Samaritan woman, His disciples come back and view him with suspicion because he's talking to a woman like that. Jesus is marginalized. Jesus tells the leper in Mark 1 go back to the community, but don't tell anybody what I've done because it might detract from my ability to preach. But the leper doesn't listen. He goes and he blabs. And the text says Jesus was forced to live outside in lonely places, marginalized. He traded places with the leper. In Mark 5, we think that Jesus went to that Gentile region so he could preach the gospel. But because of what he did for that demon possessed naked guy, casting the demons into pigs, and the pigs went off the cliff, well, the townsfolk are upset and they're scared of Jesus. And they ask him to leave. His ministry is marginalized because of his mission to the marginalized. But he didn't care. This just how he rolls, It's just what he does. And whether it's the Father in the Old Testament or Jesus in the New Testament, the way that they break bars and lift heads is not just by healing people, not just by providing for people, but giving people the dignity that comes from relationship, friendship. I will be your God and you will be my people is the relational reality that caused Hebrew slaves to see themselves as a holy nation. When we relate to people on the margins with grace and love, not condescension and paternalistic pride, it has a way of breaking the bars on their backs and lifting their heads in the dignity of discipleship. That's the mission of God. And if it's good enough for God, well, then maybe it's good enough for us, too. So here's my question as we come down from the mountain called Summit. What's your mission? What dream are you chasing? What dream am I chasing? Is it the American dream? Or is it the kingdom of god on earth as it is in heaven is the vision we're chasing more driven by the values of an often narcissistic consumeristic self-absorbed culture or the values of a topsy-turvy kingdom in which the king of kings and lord of lords Gives instead of takes, relinquishing his pomp and circumstance to dignify and empower those on the margins. I wonder if even Christian colleges in America are guilty of cultivating affluenza in us. A sense of entitlement in the center and apathy about the margins. Thank God he didn't succumb to affluenza. <laughs> I mean, if anybody exists in the center of privilege, it's the preexistent eternal son of God who chose to forsake his privilege in the center to become one of us and one with us. A God immune to suffering chooses to suffer with us. What kind of God does this? Jesus Christ, the one and only, full of grace and truth, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And he didn't just go on a 33 year mission trip. The Bible says that when he ascended, that we'll see him come back in the same way that he left. That is, there is to this day a first century Jew seated at the right hand of the Father. The implications of his identification with us through the incarnation are with him to this day. His desire to associate with a marginalized human race cost him something forever. Forever. and this is the gospel, thanks be to God. And if we're going to identify with him and experience him, we've got to go where he is. And if every relationship in our life has the potential to elevate our status, to build our resume, to help our career, to increase our popularity, then chances are we aren't building relationships with those on the margins. When I was a college pastor, students were always wrestling with two questions. You're wrestling with the same ones. What is God's will for my life, and how can I experience more intimacy with Christ? And the answer to both questions is the same. Go on mission to the margins with the master. where he is. He's not hobnobbing with those who can make his life better. He's rolling up his sleeves, jumping in the gutter, trying to undo the shame and disgrace that the first Adam dumped on the human race by becoming a second Adam so that the human race can shine again with the Imago day that marked us at creation. That's where he's at. His capacity to resist privilege and embrace the margins, makes Christ so stunningly beautiful, don't you think? And when we access the empathy to escape the center and embrace the margins, we get to experience the presence and the power of God in the most profound ways. A mature lover loves what his lover loves, right? I love my mother-in-law. I do. My wife can attest to that. She's sitting right there. She's the one going like this. I love my mother-in-law because I love my wife, and my wife loves her mom. If we love God, we'll love what God loves, those on the margins. And if we don't love those on the margins, then, then maybe we don't love God. I met Charlie uh, when he was in his mid-60s. I was his pastor. Uh, Charlie's a crotchety old cranky kind of guy. Grew up in the church, always been in the church. Uh, Miserable though, self-absorbed. Always thinking about ways the church can serve him. And when I met Charlie, I could tell he he was dying. Not physically, but a, but a slow spiritual death. And then something happened to Charlie. He was resuscitated. He was rejuvenated. He was, he was resurrected. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was alive in Charlie. And it wasn't, it wasn't a Sunday school class. It wasn't a small group. It wasn't... A worship service, as good as those things are, that did it for Charlie. He ran into a bunch of homeless people who loitered outside of his favorite hardware store. At first, Charlie just turned the other cheek so he couldn't see them. And then he he sipped coffee with them. He got to know them. His heart broke for them. He befriended them. He fell in love with them. And I saw Charlie come back to life spiritually. And he grabbed a bunch of guys at the church. They went and they, he bought a bunch of building materials from Home Depot. And then they went back behind the Walmart in the woods, which is where the homeless people lived. And they built little houses. They broke the law, but again, they broke the law to break the bars. They built a bunch of little houses in the woods behind Walmart. And Charlie didn't just find meaning in the margins. He did. He actually found God in the margins. What happened to Charlie was a microcosm for what happened to the church he attended. A church that had been really good at staying in their insulated holy huddle drawing lines in the sand to keep people on the margins out. A church full of petty infighting. A church that had scared away five pastors in 10 years. A self-absorbed church. The denomination was going to close the doors of this church. And then they called me to be their next victim. I mean, pastor. And I'm not sure what I was thinking or if I was thinking, but I said yes. And I'm so glad I did because my eyes got to see a miracle. I watched an insular, self-absorbed church get serious about mission to the margins. So for example, what they would do is they would choose with limited resources to pay an electric bill for a single mom with three kids and postpone the purchase of a sound monitor for the worship team. They postponed it for like a year. They gave one of the houses on their campus to be used as a halfway house for recovering addicts. They let homeless people during the winter months sleep in the church building. That was against the law, too, but they didn't care. They started a food pantry that fed hundreds of people every month. They started a clothing bank that uh, provided for people, dozens of people. They started Narcotics Anonymous and... Uh, Gamblers Anonymous, recovery groups, even though it meant there was a lot of cigarette butts on the campus that somebody had to clean. And here's the coolest part they didn't just, in a condescending way, give handouts to people. They actually used those ministries to build friendship with the people on the margins. It wasn't just a handout, it was a relationship, a sharing of life. And God brought that church back from the dead. It was messy. In fact, mission to the margins is messy. The incense of cigarette smoke filled the sanctuary along with the scent of Billy from Philly, a terminally ill homeless guy with his urine-stenched jeans. The church swelled to three times its size, mostly with an influx of people in recovery from addiction. So almost always there were people drunk or high or hungover in this church. People fell asleep during my sermons all the time. Can you believe that? Don't answer. But they would rather come to church drunk or high, intoxicated, than to stay home and sober up and put on their Sunday best. And those homeless people, those recovering addicts, actually became leaders in our church before they should have been. It was messy, but this church found a way to embrace the mayhem and messiness of mission to the margins. And not just to do good works, but to identify with the incarnate Jesus Christ who's always on mission to the margins. Experts say that you are the most self-absorbed, narcissistic generation who has ever lived but I don't buy it. Do you? (laughs) But we've been lied to. We've been told that if we build our lives around the American dream of health and wealth and happiness, we'll have no regrets. And the fact is, we'll have a ton of regrets. And the only way to see past the matrix of lies that we've been told is to swallow the red pill called the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And here's what I want you to get today is that not only will you going on mission to the margins with Jesus break bars and lift heads of other people, it'll actually be used by God to break your bars and lift your head when you're on mission. That looks like this. Wednesdays at one o'clock for the last almost three years have been my salvation. I'm a part of a ministry called Kids Hope, and we go into the public schools once a week for an hour. And my little guy, I've been with him for almost three years now, since he was in kindergarten, he's in second grade, and and his name's Isaiah, he's the cutest kid in the world. And I got into this ministry to sort of break any bar on his back and lift his head in dignity. And so for the first year, I would go to his school, we'd spend an hour together, and then I'd walk him back to his classroom, and I would, he's real small, and I would get on my knees before he, we parted ways, and, and I would say, Lenny and Isaiah never give up because God loves us, and then we'd hug, and he'd go back in class. I did that for a year. In year two, I started to ask him the question, what do Lenny and Isaiah always do? And he says with his lisp, Never give up because God loves <laughs> us. Well, uh, last year I hit a, a dry spiritual patch. Uh, I wasn't hanging on, hopefully. I was giving up on some things that I had been praying for, I gave up hope on. I wasn't feeling loved or lovable. I was a bit self absorbed. Even your professors struggle with the doubts you struggle with, by the way. But I went on Wednesday at 1 o'clock like I'm supposed to do. And I was in my head. And I gave Isaiah a hug, started to walk away. And Isaiah just stood at the door of his class. He didn't go in. I'm like, what's this kid doing? I forgot our ritual because I wasn't feeling it. And he looked me in the eyes and he said, Lenny and Isaiah, never give up because God loves us. And God used the words of this kid on the margins in every way to break my bars and lift my head in hope and dignity. A little higher that day. Here's, here's the application. I'm running out of time, so let me just give it to you. Here's the application. Four words, okay? You can handle this. I know you're in study. Here we go. Four words. Empathy, escape, embrace, experience. Empathy, escape, embrace, experience. Here's my message in a nutshell. When we access the empathy to escape the center and embrace the margins, we get to experience the presence and the power of God in the most profound ways. But it starts with empathy. It doesn't end there. It starts there. So what's, what's the gauge on your empathyometer these days? When I was in college, I was so self-absorbed. You're better than that. But my thoughts were like, what's for breakfast? How can I get an A in that paper with minimal work? I wonder if that girl's checking out my tight and tapered two-tone jeans. Um, What's that guy who just walked by? What does he think of me? Uh, Are my upper abs beginning to show through my fat? What's for lunch? So those are the thoughts. So I I want us to take every thought captive. I want us to think about our thoughts. That's it. And give God the space to increase the gauge on our empathyometer for those on the margins, to think less of ourselves. Our, uh, our president, Dr. Wright, talks about Indiana Wesleyan becoming a truly great Christian university. I know what he means by that. He doesn't mean by becoming truly great that our students will graduate and get the highest paying jobs, so they can insulate themselves in suburban sandcastles completely cut off from the sight and smell of those on the margins. It's not what he means. What he means by truly great and truly Christian is that we will do our job by God's grace to equip you not to thrive in the center, but to serve on the margins. Not to build a nice little career for yourself, but to build a life for the hopeless, the hurting, the homeless, the addicted, the afflicted, and the alone. That is why God has called out Indiana Wesleyan University. And if we fail at this, God will call us out. So, I dare you, I triple dog dare you, to stand up with me, and I'm standing too. And I wanna offer a benedictory prayer and challenge for God to haunt us and hound us until we have the empathy it will take to join Him on mission to the messy margins. So, would you stand with me if you feel so inclined? It's time to come down from the summit and into the messy margins may God enable us to see past the nose on our face to his grace may God empower us to resist the quest to seek comfort convenience and coziness in the center so that we go with courage and commitment and compassion to the margins to seek liberty and justice, freedom and dignity for all. Because after all, that's what Jesus Christ did. And in this world, we are like him. Amen? Go in God's peace.